0: Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the University of Massachusetts Medical School's Office of Communications. Welcome to the Voices of UMass Med.
1: Vitiligo, it is a disease you may not know by name, but chances are good that you do know or have seen someone suffering from this disease. Thanks to innovative research, we are on the cusp of some highly effective treatments and possibly on the way to a cure. Dr. John Harris is joining us today. He is an MD, PhD in the Department of Dermatology at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and one of the country's leading specialists in vitiligo. Welcome, thanks for talking to us. Thank you, Jennifer. So as we just alluded to, vitiligo is not uncommon. Can you start by describing um, the prevalence and um, how the disease manifests itself?
2: Yeah. It's often described uh, online and, and everywhere as a rare disease, and I don't know why, because I think it's just maybe people will care more Poor if they counting. call it rare. Poor <laughs> counting. Poor counting, right? So the math doesn't add up. But it's one of the most common diseases yeah. uh, out there that we can get. It's one in 100 people. Uh, And so that's a lot of people. And I guarantee everybody Mm -hmm. listening to this knows somebody, whether or not they Mm -hmm. know about it.
1: Mm -hmm. So for people listening to this who maybe can't place the visual, describe visually Mm -hmm. what vitiligo um, looks like.
2: Yeah, it's a disease that causes white spots on the skin. Mm -hmm. It's pretty um, clear Uh, when you see it. The darker your skin, the more obvious it is because of the Mm -hmm. contrast. Uh, And the white spots are caused by the pigment cells getting, um, getting killed by the immune system. Um, when you don't have pigment cells, you get some some white skin in that area.
1: And can it change over time? Like how does it hmm. first, is there a general age at which people sort of first see signs of it and how does it um, evolve over time?
2: Yeah, so half the patients who get vitiligo do so before the age of 20. Hmm. So a lot of children have it. Uh, 80% of those who get it, get it before the age of 30, but then you, uh, can get it at any age. So 20% get it after the age of 30. And uh, I've seen all the way up to 70s and 80s people Mm -hmm. getting it for the first time.
1: And so describe sort of the current treatment. So you're both a clinician and a researcher. So Mm -hmm. what is it that you're able to offer patients when they come into your clinic?
2: We can offer them a lot. You know, We talk about research and trying to get better treatments and ultimately a cure. But right now we have treatments that reverse vitiligo. That's Mm -hmm. the good news. Uh, Unlike other autoimmune diseases, Mm -hmm. Uh, this one's fully reversible in, in most cases. And, and so we use, uh, because it's the immune system causing the disease, we use immunosuppressants to treat the disease. So we have topical uh, steroids, topical calcineur, calcineurin inhibitors, um, uh, immune signaling inhibitors that uh, are effective for vitiligo. And, uh, and then probably the best treatment we have is uh, narrowband UVB phototherapy. It looks a little bit like a tanning bed, but it's yeah. not. Uh, Importantly, it's, it's, it's yeah, not a tanning bed. A different um, type of light. Uh, tanning beds tan you and give you cancer, and yeah. uh, UVB does, not, does, does neither. Um, and it really uh, suppresses the immune system so that the ongoing attack mm-hmm. is decreased and stimulates the pigment cells to regrow, so they regenerate mm-hmm. and they can come back into the skin.
1: And is that able um, to give people with vitiligo sort of a 100% effective treatment where the disease doesn't influence their life? Or talk about how it, how it works and also how it does influence their lives. What are the coping strategies? Yeah,
2: um, so treatments uh, are, are very effective, but they're not perfect. Uh, it actually depends on where the vitiligo is on your body. So uh, vitiligo, we found, really only gets better if you have hair follicles in that skin with normal pigment. So that if you think hard, you can think of parts of your body that have no hair. Uh, the knuckles, uh, fingertips, uh, under the underside of your wrists. Those areas actually don't get better with any treatment most of the time. Um, the good news is on the face, uh, everybody has hair. Uh, in women, you don't see it as prominently, but it's there. And so the, the face is very easy to treat. The fingertips are, are almost impossible. The feet are difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we try to set expectations for patients. Uh, you know, so everybody's happy that their face is gonna get better quickly. Everybody tends to be sad that their, their hands are not. Okay. Uh, and so both of those are very visible areas.
1: And you were saying there are actually two of the more common uh, yeah. areas of the body where people see vitiligo. That's right. Any understanding about why that might be?
2: Uh, we don't know for sure. Uh, we have some ideas and it would take a good hour for us to talk about that <laughs> to, to suggest, but we're, we're working on that. I think that's an important question why uh, so uh, of, of people who have vitiligo, why do, do 80 to 90% of them have either the face or the hands involved? Yeah. Um, that can help, help us understand what, what drives the disease.
1: There are so many uh, paths and diseases that physicians and researchers could choose to work on, and I'm mm-hmm. curious how vitiligo um, crossed with your path. Yeah,
2: it's, it's an interesting story, I think. I'm yeah. biased, I guess, but <laughs> uh, my grandmother had vitiligo and her brother had it. And, uh, and so I, when I was, I remember at four or five years old looking at my grandmother's hands and, and wondering why they were splotchy, but assuming it was just, you know, kind of a normal part of aging. Uh, now in retrospect, I've seen that she's not with us anymore. I've seen pictures though, um, and she clearly had vitiligo. Yeah. Is um, that
1: something that, did she talk about it? I mean, I know you were young at the time, but is that something that you remember being discussed? Not or was at all. it?
2: And it was never talked about the or way discussed. It was. I don't know if it's because she didn't want to or because she didn't know what it was, mm-hmm. or. Um, it was unclear. Yeah. And, and then, so that was probably a little bit of priming when I was four or five into curiosity about the skin and vitiligo. Uh, but then my, my mentor who gave me my PhD um, was a diabetes specialist. So I worked on juvenile diabetes to get my PhD and, uh, and, and was not interested in becoming an endocrinologist. And so I was trying to explore other opportunities. And he told me about the skin and got that interest planted and then introduced me to one of his patients who had uh, new onset juvenile diabetes? Mm-hmm. Uh, she was 20 years old, and he uh, smiled and asked me to do a physical exam. And, and when I sat her up to listen to her lungs, I saw this big patch of vitiligo on her back, hmm. and was fascinated. And said, "Wait, you, we didn't talk about this one. Did you get this?" She said, "Oh, it all happened at the same time."
1: Meaning the diabetes and the vitiligo appeared. Yeah, at the
2: same and two time. other autoimmune diseases it all hit her at once. Wow. And, and so I looked and I said, "Wow, I can't get my hands on your pancreas to understand what caused this." but I can get your skin. And I always wanted to understand, you know, we use animal models to understand disease, but I've really always wanted to get my hands on, on the human tissue to understand what's going on. And we can do that with vitiligo.
1: And so that was at the conclusion of your PhD. And then what came next? You said, this is it. Yeah.
2: Uh, so it was that point I, I was finishing up medical school. After the PhD, we have two, two more years of medical school. Um, and during that time I was brainstorming, number one, how to Get into dermatology, which is a competitive field, and number two, if I got in, how would I how would I design experiments to understand vitiligo? Um, so I spent a lot of time thinking about that. Um, then I went to the University of Pennsylvania for dermatology training and did my postdoctoral fellowship there, where we created a mouse model of vitiligo, and uh, that has been really helpful. Uh, so we have a bunch of mice that have white spots all over their skin, and we uh, we've learned a lot from them.
1: Um. Let's talk about that. So, I mean, when you started your training, it was probably, how different was the treatment even 10, 15 years ago
2: yeah. compared uh, to now? Not very different. Really? So, okay. Yeah. We haven't made a whole lot of progress we, we, um, until recently, but I would say over the last 20, 25 years, oh. we've been using narrowband UVB phototherapy. Um, the length of treatment's pretty interesting. We've been using light therapy for vitiligo thousands of years so huh. the Egyptians would take uh, patients and have them sit out in the Sun really? uh, Sun gives you UVB phototherapy sure. so it gives you a lot of other more dangerous things but at the same time you can get the treatment from the Sun um, and in Egypt uh, they would chew on these black seeds called Babaji seeds <laughs> Egypt and India and uh, that actually would uh, has a chemical in it called sorolin and then we didn't discover until you know the 70s that that we could distill that out and, and use this this chemical called sorolin, combine it with light, and it was very effective for vitiligo. The problem is, we know now, after 30 or 40 years of using it, that it increases the risk of skin cancer pretty significantly. Um, and so while it's effective for vitiligo, and people still use it, so in India, people will go to their doctor and, and they'll get babachi seeds, or, or they'll, get, um, they'll get homeopathic yeah. uh, medicine to put in their bodies that they don't know what's in it, and it tends to be the sorolin. It's very effective, but it, it, it causes a lot of risk. So we've learned that the, the narrowband UVB phototherapy, also that comes from the sun. We don't have to combine it with this chemical. Uh, it's just as effective, or even better, and, and, and it the... doesn't cause skin cancer. So that's what we use now.
1: Yeah, those are some potentially serious side effects that yes. you certainly would want. So what is the research that has you most excited right now? Like, it feels like we're on the cusp of some significant yeah. changes for patients. Yeah, there, there's a
2: lot happening in the, in the past five, 10 years. Um, the genetics of vitiligo has has really um, become apparent, and we have a number of genes that we know that cause vitiligo now, in um, in others around the country, and then combined with what we're doing, we're really trying to understand the immune system better. It's only until recently that that pretty much everybody's agreed that it, it's it's the immune system that causes this whole thing. Um, sure, it's the pigment cells that that end up disappearing, but it's because the immune system has, the has yeah. And so what's exciting is we're understanding now uh, the pathways and the tools that the immune system is using to kill these cells. And there are existing drugs and, and others that we're developing that block those tools and prevent them from functioning. And they're, uh, they appear to be working pretty well. Uh, so we, we, we often will start testing them in mice and we see what works there. And we've even a few of them have gotten into to, to some patients, and they, they worked there, and, and so, so there we're there are some
1: clinical trials that people can tap into if they're interested. That's right.
2: So we have two clinical trials ongoing right now. Um, we're currently recruiting for one of them, um, but they they recruit quickly. Uh, you know, patients are really interested in getting into in getting involved, um, and we we are um, already have plans to 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 start uh, some more in the near future. So these are this is an ongoing.
1: So, you said quickly that you're starting to learn a lot about the genetics and the, the, the genes, the specific, the specific genes that are linked to vitiligo. So, walk us through why that's important. What does mm-hmm. it mean when you identify a gene that you think has a connection to a disease?
2: Yeah, so um, we, can, we can learn a lot about, about what's, what's there when, when vitiligo is happening. So, if, you have, if you're one of my patients with vitiligo and you're kind enough to let me take some of your skin, um, we do that and we can look in there. We can see the proteins and the cells and all the things going on at that time um, And and that may be really important for driving your disease or it may be uh, just irrelevant so if you see you know if you if you see something going on and an uh, Example I like to use is if, if there's a burning house and every time you, you see you, you see a house burning down you see a guy in a yellow hat spraying water on it you could come to the wrong conclusion that it's, it's the, the water that's causing the fire and you should just get rid of that guy, put him in prison because he, he's causing all this damage. Um, and so we don't want to make those errors and we're always keeping that in mind that what we see there might not be the cause, but it might be trying to help. Um, genetics is different. So, so the way you identify genes that cause vitiligo is you take um, uh, thousands of patients who have it and then you have a bunch of people who don't have it and you compare, compare the genes the, the, the um, alleles or the types, the versions of the genes that they have, and you try to see which ones are more common in the vitiligo people. Mm-hmm. And, and by definition, when you find that there's a gene that's, that's more common in people with vitiligo, you know that's a cause, that caused the disease. You don't have any, um, any questions about that. And so I think that there's a lot of value in understanding, well, You know, for example, as I mentioned 20 or 30 years ago, there was a a strong debate about whether vitiligo was caused by a melanocyte defect. Is it just a degenerative disease where they just kind of poop out? Or or is it an autoimmune disease where they're being attacked? And the genetics now, out of the 50 or 60 genes, 50 or 55 of them are immune genes. So I think that that's really helped us to be able to say, well, we know that this is caused by the immune system.
0: You're listening to Voices of UMass Med, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of the University of Massachusetts Medical School.
1: So earlier this year, you um, hosted here at UMass Medical School the largest vitiligo conference that's ever been held, and you had a particular focus on children, so I want to talk, pick your brain as a clinician about what are the challenges that a disease like vitiligo, what what are the patients up against? Yeah,
2: I, so um, we all know that children suffer at the hands of their peers uh, in school. Um, we know that bullying is a big part of life, uh, and, and we're trying to change that as a society. Um, but but you can imagine, you know, you're at your most vulnerable when you're growing up. You're, you're going through puberty. You're, so many things are changing. You're you're trying to figure out who you are, and and you look different from from everyone, um, and, and and that can be really a challenge. Uh, I had parents who, um, who brought their 14 year old son in to see me. And uh, you know, I was trying to explain what vitiligo was. And, uh, and they had, you know, I said it, it's actually similar to other autoimmune diseases like diabetes. You know, he, he could have diabetes. And they said, oh, we, we would much rather he had diabetes. And I said, really, because that could kill him. <laughs> and, and they said, yeah, but um, you, you, we could hide that. He, he'd be able to get married. His sister would be able to get married. Um, the social implications of having vitiligo can be steep. Um, Particularly and, in some cultures. In, in, yeah, in some cultures. So this, this was a, a family from India, um, and I hear this a lot. Um, and, and so, but even beyond the strong social stigma, cultural stigma, uh, you can imagine. So I, I mentioned that the hands and the face are the most commonly involved. So those are the most difficult to cover. You know, if you have psoriasis as a, as a kid, Um, It it can be really devastating for you, but rarely affects the face and and rarely affects the hands. So while it's a skin disease you wish you didn't have, you can cover it and your friends don't have to know that you have it. Um, If it's right in the middle of your forehead, uh, I had a three-year-old girl brought in by her parents and she had a, a, a big white spot right in the middle of her forehead. And her parents were in tears, and they said, "We brought her to Macy's, and we showed her uh, a makeup that you can use to cover it up." And and they helped us at the makeup counter to put the makeup on it, and it hid the the, the white spot. And she looked in a mirror and she said, "Mommy, I'm finally beautiful." Aww. And she said that the parents just broke down into She's tears. Three years old. And three I'm already years old
1: coming up against that. Mm-hmm. So um, so let's talk about makeup for a second. Is that something that you see a lot of your patients turning to just to? Um, Kind of get through the day yeah, it's more an, comfortably. It's an
2: option. Um, typical makeup doesn't work. So typical makeup, you know, it's very hard to cover a completely white spot with with regular makeup. There are products out there that are made specifically for this. So either to cover a tattoo or to cover vitiligo, um, they, they're a combination of liquid with a powder, and and they, they the powder fixes it and it's long lasting and it's thick, so you can cover that real sharp contrast. Um, but there's always the problem is it, it's never. Um, completely dry and so it'll rub off on things, and rub off on, on white, you know, shirts and on the collar. And uh, it's a challenge, it can take an hour or more to put on every day um, and and doesn't always completely cover. And, and so it's, it's, it's not that simple, although there are products that help.
1: But it certainly leaves um, a lot of possibility for future treatments that could improve on that yeah, quality patients, of life.
2: Patients really, they, they almost never want me to hear to hear about makeup, I, I bring it up as an option and, and no one's ever interested in that. I think if they were, uh, they probably, you know, would be using it already. And and, and so it, it is not a simple solution.
1: Um, I want to ask you if vitiligo causes other side effects or other health impacts. You talked about a diabetes connection, which mm-hmm. I think is really interesting, but um, if even if you um, just had vitiligo, mm-hmm. are there other impacts to your health?
2: Yeah, in, in, in different categories. So I talked about, um, Diabetes. I mentioned that there's a genetic overlap. There's also a strong overlap with uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Mm -hmm. So it's an autoimmune disease of the thyroid. uh, And that's actually a pretty common autoimmune disease in the population too. It affects 3% of the population. But if you have vitiligo, um, 20% of vitiligo patients get it. So there's a strong connection with other diseases, um, as as I mentioned, the thyroid, uh, diabetes. So when you get a patient with vitiligo, you don't necessarily hear that all their family members have vitiligo, but they have autoimmune diseases. You know, grandma had, had um, thyroid disease and their cousin has, has diabetes and somebody else has pernicious anemia. And, and so vitiligo, is that's what happens. It's this family of autoimmunity that, are, that, that affects them. Um, in addition to, to being at a higher risk for getting another autoimmune disease because the genetics are really making the immune system strong, and when it overreacts it causes autoimmunity, Uh, There are, interestingly, pigment cells, melanocytes, not just in your skin. They're in your hair follicles. They're in your eye, in your inner ear, and in your brain, and in your heart. There are rare types of vitiligo uh, where those other areas can be affected, and so patients can go blind. Um, They have meningitis-like symptoms, severe uh, injury to the brain. Um, We have some evidence that patients with vitiligo lose part of their hearing faster than others. Um, we don't have any evidence yet that, that it affects the heart, <laughs> although we're now interested. We don't know what the melanocytes are doing there. And um, and so there, there are more widespread effects than, than the simple uh, impact it has on the skin.
1: All the more reason to invest in that research. Right. So I, I do want to ask you, people of a certain age, of course, will remember Michael Jackson, the yes. you know pop singer um, who, who passed away uh, almost a decade ago, I think. Um, I want to talk about him because his case was probably the most famous that in some ways put vitiligo on the map. And I wonder if that's um, your perception of it and and if you can talk about what his example, being so public, did for awareness of this disease.
2: Yeah, so vitiligo and Michael Jackson is very complicated for a number of reasons. Um, I wrote a blog uh, about Michael Jackson, you know, did he really have vitiligo, and I get Hundreds of people visiting and reading that blog every day. Really? So yeah, it's 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 of still of huge interest. And at any time, Michael Jackson or his family comes into the public eye, that you know we get thousands of hits, you know, a day on that. Um, so Michael Jackson did have vitiligo, but what was challenging was that uh, it affected him psychologically so much. It appeared, it actually he he said himself that it started shortly after Thriller, um, and it had affected him so much that he wanted to. Covered. Imagine, you know, you have billions of fans around the world, and it's all about how you look. And you know, this was the 80s. Not that things have changed that much, um, but then all of a sudden, his appearance is changing. He's got white spots appearing all over his body, and he can't do anything about it. Um, he's wearing. We think he he started wearing the white glove to cover vitiligo, and and so that actually influenced. And then everybody loved the white glove, and it was just. Um, but. Covering this when he's so visible, so, you know, the cameras, the paparazzi would be all over the place, and so he couldn't go anywhere without finding a way to cover this up. Um, So psychologically, it affected him significantly. At the time, uh, he was prescribed a cream uh, that removes the pigment from the skin. It only really works if you have vitiligo and it's the only FDA approved medical treatment for vitiligo. So he was prescribed this cream. It is a bleaching cream. So he very clearly went from, from black to white uh, because this cream removes all the pigment cells. Uh, but the goal is to uh, make the spots go away. And and so he did that And and he was asked about it, but he didn't want to admit that he had this vitiligo. He was trying to hide that. So then people said, well, you're using this cream because you want to change your appearance, right. and then he then, then he kind of went off. back and said, "No, oh, wait a minute, I have a disease." And they were like, "Why didn't you say that in the first place?" And he said, "No, but it, it's a private thing. You know, this is I don't want my medical." Which is completely yeah, understandable. Yeah, and, and then and then he had plastic surgery, which is unrelated to having vitiligo, and, and you know he was he was famous at the age of five, and um, he, his life was complicated, and so now take everything that we have with a with with my patients, I already told you of vitiligo and how much it affected their lives. Now combine it with having billions of people watching you all the time, and then combine it with early fame and what that does to people, and yeah. uh, it, it's And it's relatively
1: early days of treatments for the disease as well. That's
2: right, so, so they're at the time that we didn't have the treatments that we have now. Um, and you know, what, what's unfortunate, we, we, we wish that uh, we had those and that he was able to see how much was going on now um, he could, you know, he and his family could certainly help the cause. Yeah. Uh, we're working hard to make vitiligo better. We've now made so many improvements, um, but we're right on the cusp of making a lot more. And, and limited resources and and limited, you know, it, it's it, that's the only thing holding us up. I think we're going to make some pr- pretty interesting progress
1: soon. So the message to people out there who think that they might have vitiligo is: mm-hmm. don't be shy, don't be embarrassed, right. go talk to a dermatologist about it.
2: Yeah. So um, you know. Any perspective you have about your vitiligo is okay. There are some people, uh, there are models, who are going out without any makeup and, and their vitiligo is who they are. Um, most people don't feel that way, but that's certainly a great way to, to feel about your vitiligo. If you're happy that you have it, that's, that's the best thing. Um, very few people feel that way. If, if you want your vitiligo treated, if you wanna learn more, certainly go to a dermatologist. If you wanna meet other people with vitiligo, chances are there are uh, groups, uh, support systems in your city or nearby uh, they're all over the country now and all over the world, uh, and they're, they're, it's a great community. So the one thing that I enjoy most about being a vitiligo scientist and researcher and clinician is meeting all these people. It's a great community. So um, the scientists work together. We're all friends. The, 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 the clinical specialists, we, we get together, and we sing karaoke, and we spend time together, and, and we love hanging out with the patients too. So it's, it's a great place to be.
1: Sounds great. Congratulations on all the work that you've done and thank all you. the discoveries yet to come. Dr. John Harris, Associate Professor of Dermatology here at UMass Medical School. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the Office of Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Visit our website at umassmed.edu news where you can find all of our podcasts. And follow us on Facebook at UMass Med, on LinkedIn at University of Massachusetts Medical School, and on Twitter at UMass Medical.